How crazy was Osmond Mania? Well, at its peak in 1973, 50 years ago this year, over 15,000 Osmond fans shut down London's Heathrow Airport. That same year, the Osmonds devoted an entire album to sharing what they believed as the plan was released. So why would one of the most famous music groups make an album to share the doctrines of their faith? Well, because they believed it. Although he has two older brothers, Alan Osman is the oldest of the singing Osman brothers, and despite rarely singing anything more than backup vocals, Alan co-wrote and co-produced many of the Osmonds' biggest hits, in addition to playing piano and guitar. In 1987, Osman was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and has since made great contributions to the MS community. He and his wife, Suzanne, are the parents of eight sons. This is All In, an LDS Living podcast where we ask the question, what does it really mean to be all in the gospel of Jesus Christ? I'm Morgan Pearson, and I am so excited to have Alan Osman on the line with me today. Alan, welcome. Thank you, Morgan. Good to be here. Well, I am a big Osmond fan. And I should tell you actually that I was a fan of your sons as well, the Osmond second generation. And so this is very exciting for me. I've I've been excited about this interview and I'm looking forward to learning more about your experiences and just admire you and your family so much. Well, thank you. You are the oldest of the Osmond brothers. And I was curious, as I began to prepare for this interview, I started to think about how your two older brothers were both born deaf. And um, we've had Justin Osmond on this podcast previously. And so as I was thinking about this, I thought, you know, I wonder how that affected Alan's growing up and especially prior to your other siblings coming along and starting to grow up themselves. How did having two older brothers with hearing impairment affect you? Well, you know, when I was born, my mother had an out-of-body experience. And uh, she records it in her journal that she found herself up near the ceiling looking down at a body. And the doctor was slapping her face. And thank heavens, it made her mad. And she came back into her body. And I'm grateful for that. So I was born third with two deaf brothers and and all i remember is alan go get your brothers because it was they couldn't hear so i had to go get Verl and tom and then when we started <laughs> our music group in 1957 it was alan go get your brothers it's time to rehearse so it's always like alan go get alan alan go get this and that <laughs> so it was amazing well, we we learned sign language, and it helped us in our recording because while the microphone's on, we could sign language and wouldn't make any noise, and uh, we could oh, communicate wow. that way. But the reason we started singing was for Verl and Tom uh, because they wanted to go on missions for the church, and so that's how we would start raising funds for them and also to buy hearing aids for them. And then we also wanted to serve missions, so that was that was our plan. And uh, when they started throwing coins at us on stage, we knew what we were on target. <laughs> Seriously. Well, I, I wonder, you are actually old enough to remember kind of the entire journey of the Osmonds, as we know you all today. I wondered, what do you remember about the very beginning, the the whole Andy Williams period of your career and, and as things kind of got going? Well, that would take a long time to tell you, but I remember the first thing. We were on a trip as a family to, to Yellowstone Park. And I was sitting behind my father who was driving, and mother and father were singing the old oaken bucket song. And I I realized mother was singing melody, but father was singing something different. And that's when I found, oh, I get it. And I I found the relationship musically. And I started singing father's part. My mother squealed. She said, ah, we got got singers. So that's (laughs) why we started the group. And I was the oldest. And and, uh, through the years, we just... We followed the music. We loved the music, and we always had a family night before the church instigated it. And ours was a Friday night at that time, and we learned a song every week for family night. Well, when we had the opportunity to go down and work on Andy Williams' show, we had a chance to use all those songs that we learned and developed. We picked up musical instruments. We learned to, uh, we learned to tap dance because our brothers, Vro and Tom, could hear the rhythm 
So when they took a, the lessons to tap dance, they come home and teach us, and then we took tap dance lessons. But we were too poor to have all of us take lessons. So one brother would go learn something, then come home and teach the rest of us. And so <laughs> that's how we learned so many different instruments. It was really fun, and it all paid off. But I, I love the brother Joel and Tom. They were the first two deaf missionaries for the church, and they went out without purse or script, and they had to kind of figure it out how to communicate with deaf hearing deaf people and share the gospel. I remember going up in Huntsville, Utah, and we met David O. McKay at the Prophet. And as we went into his home, and he greeted us and welcomed us in, he learned that Verl was getting ready to go on his mission, and he pulled five five dollars out of his pocket and gave it to him. That was uh, that's when we said, "Wow, this is what we got to keep building." Well, I I love Alan that you all have always made Tom and Verl a part of all of this. It's it's never been like something where they were left out of it, but they were the reason for it and the the catalyst of it. And I think that that's awesome. When we built our studios in Utah. We put uh, we built a printing company to do our scripts, and Tom was the head of that. And Verl was in charge of taking a lot of photography, which he was good at. And we used them all the time, right side by side. That's our theme. And uh, the hearing impairedness is just one of the challenges we had in our family. We've had other things. I have MS, but MS does not have me. Uh, but we get by with what we what we can, and what we can't, we help each other. Well, I think that's wonderful. And I, uh, I want to talk more about MS. But before we get to that, I wonder, do you feel like the experience that you all had with with attaining recognition and kind of this journey of fame that you went on? Was that gradual? Or was there a moment where for you as a young boy, it was like, Oh, wow, this is really happening? We uh, did it not. We did it for the fun, for music. We did not seek for fame or fortune. We uh, we were a very humble family. We raised on a farm. I milked a cow twice a day with brothers Verl and Tom. We had chickens, and and, and that, you know we were so busy. Uh, we worked at the post office. We helped our parents, through, especially during Christmas time, stamp packages, and it was just a, a family thing. We had an orchard, and we irrigated. We hauled pipe. We hauled sugar bees. We were just normal kids. But when we, when we went down, we got our patriarchal blessings when we went down. And uh, it told us that we would help basically to open doors for missionaries. That was our job. And we took that very seriously. So when we, when we went down to California, it was to be successful because we wanted to share our lifestyle of family and love that we have with others. Well, that's remarkable. I think one thing that I have been impressed with, and I, I, you know, in preparing to interview Marie, I believe that was last year, I watched a lot of videos of you all. And I was so impressed by the way that you and your brothers and Marie repeatedly have stood up for the church, have stood up for the things that you believe, have taken every opportunity to share the gospel. And and I think that that's remarkable. I wondered, there, there have been many people, I think, Alan, that have been introduced to the church as a result of first loving your family's music. And I know of of several that have joined because of your family's example that that joined, obviously joined because they had testimonies, but began investigating the church because of your family's example and later joined. Are there any experiences with that that stand out in your mind or any missionary opportunities over the years that that you'd like to make sure to highlight? Well, Morgan, uh, we approached everything we did on a spiritual basis. We're all first created spiritually before we are naturally upon the earth. Moses 3, point, uh, 3 verse 5 tells us that. But so we took things spiritually first. And why we're here and the op- and said, prepare yourself and the opportunity will come. So we, we used our talents as a way to open doors for missionaries. We prepared to go on missions for ourselves. We also studied the scriptures and we believed what we said. It was not just a a thing about reading the Book of Mormon, we read it daily, and we tried to live it. We Before every show, we had what we call a meeting. It's time for a meeting. 
Well, that meant we were going to have a little word of prayer. And in the prayer, we asked Heavenly Father if someone in the audience might be touched and have a reason for the hope that was in them, as Paul talked about in the scriptures. So as we're performing, that was our whole purpose, and not just to get applause and standing ovation. Yeah, we learned a lot about how to write songs, sing songs, uh, and then make people happy. We also learned that we couldn't get a hit record unless we wrote it ourselves because everybody keeps their own songs. <laughs> so that's when we started writing, and I was one to start that. In fact, I wrote most of the stuff for the family. I guess I just kind of like poetry and music, and and being the leader, I, I was able to, uh, and the uh, keyboards, uh, it just came, and I have a, a real dear friend. He's my my ghostwriter, the Holy Ghost, and to put it mildly <laughs> directly. And, and that's how I, I like to do that. So everything we do, we approached it. It's not to get hit records. It's not to, yeah, hit records is a sign that you're having success. But we wanted to touch hearts. That's why we wrote the, the Plan album, which was our favorite album. But it was a, an album called The Plan of Life. Well, people will say, well, here goes those Mormons again. And they tried <laughs> to stop us many times. In fact, when we wrote the Plan album, which was about the you know, Plan of Happiness, we were traveling on, and on tour for a few months in the summer. And when we were in Memphis, Tennessee, our hotel caught on fire. And our, all our costumes and everything burned. We came back, and guess what? The book that I had with all of our music in it for the plan that we'd been working on burned up also. So we said, oh, man, you know, there's opposition in all things. And we know that, it's, uh, you know, the Satan is, is there. He's very real. And he was trying to stop us as well. So we had we rededicated ourselves and really focused on what we wanted to do and say with this album. And before I did that, and I, I know I'm, I'm kind of yakking here, but I'm trying to give you a picture. Uh, when yeah. we're recording, we needed to get something hit. We got to get the bigger hit because then you get more eyes and ears watching you and following you then you can be more successful in preaching the gospel. And so I told my brothers, I said, we need to say something with our words, not just, even though Down by the Lazy River was a hit, which we wrote, uh, you know, it's nice and happy and family and this and that, but we need to say something. So uh, that's when we wrote uh, the Crazy Horses album. And that album was, was, was the first song about anti-pollution, and it went number one worldwide. And it was incredible. And then I, that's when I said to my brothers, now's the time to talk about what we believe. And I started a, a project called The Plan, The Plan of Life and Happiness, because that's what it's all about. We all knew it before we came to this world, we're pre-mortally. Then we're here on earth to learn about it. And, and guess what? The plan takes effect and it t- we go in with, we go forward as we become immortal. And if the Lord Jesus Christ has a wonderful plan for all. And we all get uh, uh, the, the salvation because of him and the resurrection. And I try to, with our music and online, let people know you don't die and that's it. Why should you do I wrote a song called, Are You Up There? It says a lot. And if I could just say a few of the words, that'll help you get to the point what I'm Please. saying. I said, why should I trust in a love that I can't have forever? Does it seem right to live a game of takeaway? Should I want for children if there isn't any more for them to live for? You know, and it goes on, and, it, and those lyrics help help to express what we believe. And so it ended up saying, are you up there? Well, that's what a lot of people ask. They don't believe that Heavenly Father is omniscient and that he knows and can see the future. That's what you read in the Book of Mormon, that they couldn't believe. That's why they didn't believe the Nephi and his brothers. Well, he does see ahead, and he does know, and he has a plan for us. That's the message we wanted to take out. And that's what we try to do it with musically so that uh, it could happen. And doggone, we're just about ready to celebrate our 50th anniversary of that album. Isn't that something? That is something else. Well, and that's I, I. That's one of the main reasons that I wanted to make sure that we had the opportunity to talk, Alan, is because I think 50 years is a significant anniversary to take a look back at what you all were able to accomplish, especially with that album. So I wondered, you kind of alluded to this, but how how did that 
idea initially come to be? You guys call that album your your rock opera. <laughs> and yes, yes. and so how did you kind of have the idea to take these ideas that are doctrines of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and put them into music and not not necessarily the kind of music that you'd hear on Christian radio, typically. Um, some of these songs were rock songs, and you taught principles through them. So tell me a little bit about how that came to be. Well, Morgan, that's a great question. You know, that they told us when we started, you'll never make it in show business. You're too clean cut. You're too goody goody. We said, well, we're not going to change because that's the way we are. So we tried in our music, though, to relate to people. And, and, and uh, we started writing music. We wanted to reach, we got into the teen, teen world, became, that's when Donnie really soared. And then we, we wanted to reach our teenage, own, our, our own peers. And so we wanted to do rock and roll. We loved the Beatles. Well, the Beatles had a white album, which was their rock opera. And I said, well, let's us do one like it. And then what, what should we sing about? And I said, let's talk about the plan of life. A funny thing, even when we went to, we had a, Bill Cowsell, who was one of the Cowsells, a rock group, come to produce us. And he said, Osmonds, no one's going to give you their songs. You need to write your own. Go to the piano right now, and in five minutes, I want to have a song written. Go. Whoa. And so we go over to the piano, and all my brothers are looking at me. What do we do, Alan? So we started writing a song, and guess what we wrote about? Joseph Smith's first vision. <laughs> He's going, hey, Joe, you're taking on a big, big thing. You said there's people in the sky. <laughs> anyway, you use the gospel to do that. So we, as we were writing the rock opera approach, we did it from the very start. We started with the war in heaven. Well, it's hard to describe what that is, so we did that orchestrally. But then we, we did the thing that, that causes a lot of people to ask the most important questions about the life. It's called traffic in my mind. I've got traffic in my mind, yeah. Don't know which road to follow. So anyway, it says, we ask the questions. So who am I? Why am I here? Where in heaven's name am I going? I remember when we met with uh, Paul Dunn. He took us in to meet uh, President uh, Harold B. Lee and the and the twelve apostles, and he told them the Osmonds are coming out with a story about the plan of life. Nobody had heard it yet. We didn't seek permission because that gospel teaches us to step forward on our own with faith. So we had it all done and ready, and was going to come out. And we let the let the brethren hear it first, so at least they could know how to act or react. And we right. went in there. We played them that song, "Traffic in My Mind," and Paul Dunn said. I'd never seen so many eyebrows raised in my life. (laughs) The brethren, they says, whoa. And he said, now, brethren, listen to the lyrics. The music is what the kids like. But listen to the lyrics. And that's when we told them about who am I? Why am I here? Where in heaven's name am I going? I'm a spaceman from a different land. I've got to get back home. So we, 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 we don't teach sometimes on the nose. On music, you got to make it so it has it's palatable to the ear, and kids like it. And then once they start singing it, they realize what they're singing. That's another another way to get the gospel in their in their lives. When they start liking it, they start singing it, and then they realize what whoa, what does that mean? That's where we able to help a lot of young people answer questions to their heart. And then we talked about before the beginning, we were living oh so far away from here. And we called it home, but didn't stay. We knew that we would leave one day and cry. And then we hear a little slap like that. And you hear a baby cry. Whoa, I did it. Born. And then we, then we go and take them through that progression. And then it goes, uh, it talks about ever since we came to be with the plan, we learned to see. We alone would guide our destiny. You see, the decisions we make in this life is because of what decisions we made before. And so now what we do in this life will determine where we go after this world. If we could only get people to understand that. Mm-hmm. And then in between songs, we'd write these little vignettes. And, and this is kind of pertinent to what the whole album was about. And it's saying, we are what we were 
and will be what we do. We're all on our own. Yes, it's all up to you to learn what is false and to do what is true. It's what you've always wanted to do. See, that made him think. And so when they start thinking about what do you mean wanted to? Yes, we live premortally. So it gives us a great door to talk about it. And then I wrote a song called uh, Movie Man, which was uh, about your conscience. Why did you do it? You should not make your mother cry. I'd say you blew it. Yes, he gave you one more try. Yet you laugh and you you smile, try to run away. Don't you know what you do? You might regret someday. Because there's one who has eyes on your evil ways. The movie man. And they say, what does that mean, Alan? Well, that gives me a chance to talk about the conscience. About repentance. And all those things. And then one of the songs that we did for re- for, for repentance was a song that turned out to be a, a hit for us, but they didn't realize it. They thought it was a love song. A love song, yep. <laughs> but it was it was written about a, a repentant person singing the lyric to Jesus. Now, so if you sang the lyric, you listen to other words, not as a love song. So he says, loving you could be so easy. Loving you could make me warm. Ever since the day I left you, I tried, but I just can't get you out of my mind. And can you imagine Jesus' face when you're telling this? Thought that I could live without you. Thought I had to look around. But now that I know I need you and promise that I'll never leave you, won't you please? And then the chorus goes, let me in, let me in your arms again. And it was just as a hit record. And our audience was just sing along with this. And then when they started realizing, oh, it's about Jesus. It's a resurge of love for the song. So it's incredible. We taught another principle called one-way ticket to every anywhere. What does that mean? Well, in fact, Suzanne was a BYU cheerleader, and she had never seen me perform before we were married. And she used to dance to this. <laughs> and it's really about you can go wherever you want. It's a plan of happiness. And after this world, there are more than one heaven. You know, there's a celestial, like the glory like under the stars, and the, and the terrestrial, the glory of the moon, and the celestial like the sun. So also is the resurrection. Well, and that, that's based on truth and light. And, and that's what we tried to teach them, that we're on a one-way ticket to anywhere. There's no place you can't go. So hold on, baby. Don't let go. And it, it just, it was a great, it was dancing, fun uh, song. But boy, when you sit down and analyze it in, in context with everything else, it helps them understand that. And then I, then the song called, Are You Up There? When I got this song, it was like early in the morning. I had sat in my bed with upright with my pencil and pen in hand, and the piano was at my foot of my bed. I had the paper ready to go, and I could feel that the Lord was trying to tell me something through the Spirit. And I sat there and sat there, and it must have been a couple of hours. I'm reading scripture. I'm, I'm pondering, what is it that's supposed to say? And then it's almost as if a light turned on in the room. And I felt these words just come at me. And I was writing them down as fast as I could. I'd look at the piano. I could see what chords they were in my mind. I'd write them down. And even the melody, I, got, I wrote down the notes. And I... As soon as I finished that, it it never got changed, and, and we took it to the studio and recorded as it was. And I can testify there is a God, and also the Holy Ghost was there and had his hand in, in that coming of the songs. We don't we think we're so clever down here, we don't realize how much help we get <laughs> from not only the Holy Ghost, but our ancestors that are on the other side. We, we just didn't happen to sing. We found out we have relatives uh, back about four generations that also come from Wales, and they had 12 kids that sang in four-part harmony. So we are blessed by our ancestors. And we learned in the Scriptures in Doctrine and Covenants 128, verse 15, it says, "For, For we without them and they without us cannot be made perfect. That's why we do family history. And we try to get our fans excited about this. 
I remember going in England and we said, hi, cousin, from the stage. There's probably 20,000 people there. And they're going, hey. I said, I said, how are we related? And they'll go, huh? And so we had a free <laughs> DNA test for them. We're trying to find our relatives. We had an Osmond over there in England somewhere that there were three brothers that originally came and we couldn't find that one. Well, I have to tell you, we finally did. And what happened, that guy married a Maori girl, went down to New Zealand. And we found 622 Osmond relatives that had deceased that had lived there. Isn't that awesome? Wow. So anyway, we, we love the gospel, all about it. We use our music to try to introduce them and tell them it's all about you and how Heavenly Father loves you and the Lord loves you and what you do matters. And uh, we try to to help them realize also uh, through like the song Darling, how important marriage is between a man and a woman. But it's more than marriage. It's the ceiling that takes place. And that makes you eternal and all your children. And then at the very end, uh, even the angels in heaven, everybody wants to know, when's Jesus coming back? So we thought we should address it. And not even, even the angels don't know when. But there are signs that we're, talk, we're supposed to watch for. And so we wrote this song called, uh, It's Gotta Be the Last Days. So we said, this is what happens. If, if this is what you see, then it's got to be the last days. So we, we came up with all these words, and I remember my mother, my brothers, all of us were trying to find words that rhyme with shun, like nation takes <laughs> the battle, their battle stations. Boy, that, we're getting close to that again. Patrons of Zodiac revelations went through the drug and the hippie movement. Lustations, breaking family relations, the breakdown of the family. Litigation, allowing shoot-up sensations with all the drugs that's going on. And that's what they said someday it would be. Now just look around. If that's what we see, it's got to be the last days. So anyway, uh, we go on to say about uh, people living lives of confusion. Billions caught up in revolution. Cities lost in their pollution. Question, what is the Constitution? If that isn't pertinent today, in fact, all those things we talked about have already come to pass. I love hearing the songwriting process. I always think that that's fascinating, and especially when you're working in gospel principles. But I am, I, I do wonder, Alan, if maybe we could give people an idea. I think one thing that People my age, you know, were not around during Osmond Mania. They may not fully appreciate just how big a deal you guys were at the peak of your fame. And the fact that you would then make this effort to share the gospel, I think, is so significant. So I wondered two things. One, I remember seeing a movie that portrayed you and your brother's experience with fame. And people were, especially teenage girls, were literally like throwing themselves at you all left and right. And I wondered, is that really what it was like? And how did you manage to stay true to yourselves and your values? Well, thank you. Uh, yes, it was. It did happen. It was called Osmond Mania, as they coined it in, in Europe. That's where it started was in London. But it also went to Germany, went to England, I went, went to uh, Japan, Australia. It, it started happening all over. There was a craze at the time with, with fan magazines and, and, and the music. And when we got to England, uh, we, we, we did, first of all, some test concerts in Cleveland and in Ohio to test to see if the market was there. Dick Clark with American Bandstand was our agent. And the same guy that handled all the, uh, the uh, Jackson 5. So uh, we were on the same tours, and, and, and so we went out, and we found out the girls were screaming. Well, we had a problem. We didn't have enough big amplifiers, so we had to redo our, our tool, our amplifiers up. Well, pretty soon, they're not only screaming, now they're coming after us. So when we went to England, it was really intense, and we hired uh, the bodyguards that the Beatles had. And so uh, Dale Murphy was, a, was the head guy, and and we had all these guys, and they would help us get in there. There, the, the, there was such a charge, and, and the press built up. 
and the fans found out we were coming to England, and we were banned from landing in Heathrow Airport commercially. And so we had our own jet with our, even our name on it. And you can't stop us from getting in that way. At least we could get into our, to where we wanted to perform for them. We had a date set there. And when we landed in Heathrow, the girls, over 15,000 of them, had broken through customs at the airport, at Heathrow Airport, and shut down the whole airport. Can you imagine the confusion of them running through and breaking through the customs? <laughs> they went up on the top where you watch off from the tar. Uh, they have a, wa- a viewing place on the top. And they're jumping up and down and screaming, waving their, their little bit, uh, things they want signed. We land our plane and come in, and Scotland Yard tells us, Osmonds, go home. In fact, they printed it in three, four-inch tall letters on the headlines of the newspaper the next day. And the press oh always goodness. just took shots at us. They think, oh, you're only here for the money. No, we're not, we said. And so we, we did our show. But then the girls, we got in our cars and they said, you're not allowed to get in close or just get out of the way out. And they said, well, let us just wave at them on the way out. As we're waving, they jumped so hard, the balcony broke. And seven girls fell. Oh, my fell. goodness. And they got hurt badly. And, and that night I went to the hospital and gave them a blessing. It was, but that's, we, we really do care about those that we love, but they just kept after us because that's the way the press are. And, and so right. they said, you're only here. And so after that tour, it was a very successful tour, but we had, they had to get fire hoses to keep the girls back and just so we could get out the door. But towards the end, we were there in our apartment and we were banned from all the hotels after a while. So we had to have an apartment that we went to and private and that one day we had our day off and i said what brothers what can we do we're sitting around the hotel we see this how can we help spread the word and i said i came up with the idea i said hey let's let's go visit the visitor center at the london temple and i told we told our bodyguards now don't stop the press from following us we want them to follow us we want the fans to follow us <laughs> So we'd go slowly and we'd make sure that everybody, boy, we had a line of cars and taxis, especially following us with all the fans in it. And, but the media were there too. And, and we just kind of let them get in there. And I said, let them get out of their car and get their cameras because they're all shooting movies of us. What do the Osmonds do on their day off? This is what the whole title was. So we were out and we're all in our suits and ties and we go into the visitor center and they're watching us walk in and we sit down and watch the Joseph Smith story. On film, and they're filming it, and it's on the news live at six o'clock. <laughs> Amazing! Use the media to your advantage, and so that was how you have to think creatively. How can we take it as lemons and turn it to lemonade? So then, the next year, and when they banned us, they go home. We we told them on there, we'll be back, and we came back, but we decided we're not going to charge anybody one penny. And we want to find a way to have as many people see us as possible for free. So we went to the BBC, and it's called the. Uh, they had a we we had a uh, half hour every day for six days, and then on uh, five days, and on the sixth day we were on the show called the Top of the Pops, and that was a very popular show to do our music. But we'd go on there on the first day with our band, we'd sing music, and they say hi to them, and the press would go write stuff bad at us. And so we take the newspaper and we'd read it what they said, and we say, "Now let me tell you the truth." <laughs> so we'd tell them the truth about what they were saying, and boy, the right. press kind of shut down. They were they couldn't take us on because we had an honest ear right to our fans. And I think that's what endeared us to them and them to us, because we'd have them in the audience. We'd sing when it's free. Everybody saw us. We weren't there for the money. We, it cost us to go over them, but that was the best thing we could have done. And we got accused. Well, they just joined the church because they're fans. And and then some people stood up and said, wait a minute. All those fans that joined are now our stake presidents and Relief Society presidents. Right. Well, and, and I think, you know, sure, people can say what they want, but I think that it's kind of like one of those by their fruits, you shall know them. And, yeah. and 
you all were consistent all along. If you hadn't been consistent, I think you could open yourself up to criticism. But I think there's so many impressive things from trying not to perform on Sundays and doing yes. firesides instead. I, I wondered, Alan, you mentioned in an email to me that you all were made 70s because you were facing the press and needed extra help and inspiration to accomplish your patriarchal blessing, which you mentioned earlier. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, we're very close with the brethren. I mean, we'd return and talk to the prophets all the time and the, and the apostles. I remember going in and they would stand up the 12 out of their chairs and we'd sit in there and we would kind of be interviewed, if you will. How's it going, family? And we had a one-on-one -on -one relationship with most of the prophets as we grew up. And that was just kind of common. And so in working with them, after President Kimball saw the effect that so many were converted during the 70s, and 73 especially when we released the Plan album, and doing firesides, we wouldn't work on Sundays, so we'd do firesides with Paul Dunn, and he was incredible. And we'd go into bearer testimonies, and he'd stand up and say, now do you hear what the Osmonds are saying? Let me tell you what's going on here and what you should do if you feel anything. There's some young missionaries all around here. Ask them if you can to explain more what's going on. And we had more people join the church. And that was great. But we tried to do it in everything we do. When we were in Los Angeles and having success with the number one television show on, the, on Friday nights with Donnie and Marie, and I was executive producer. And we tried to do what we could there, but we had a lot of restrictions because we're in California. And so we said if we only had our own control and, and lived our own lifestyle, plus, you know, show business is, is nice. It's, it's our living, but it's not our life. So we wanted to move to Utah because we were starting to date, and they're not, there weren't that many Latter-day Saint girls down there. There are some, but there's not a, not a lot. So my mother bought the Riviera Apartments in Provo just so we could meet <laughs> a lot of girls. Well, that was convenient, yeah, but uh, but it was uh, fun to be in Utah with our music as well. But we didn't have the state of the art here. So we spent right. the fortune that we had in building our studios, moved it to Utah. I remember meeting with Fred Silverman, at, at the president of ABC. He said, well, Alan, I want to congratulate your family. You guys will have the number one variety show again this year. We'd like to renew your contract. And I said, well, thank you very much, uh, but we'd like to do it from Utah. He said, Utah? What's in Utah? <laughs> and so I'm, I said, well, not much, but we've got plans to build a state-of-the-art studio. And he says, well, let me think about it. He, let it. he asked us to stay there the first half of the year and then move to Utah, and we're glad because it gave us more time to get built what we had to do up here. Not only did we put the finest equipment in in Utah, we used all Utah talent. We would only bring key people for like the camera and the, and the direction and stuff to get things started. And then the talent up here was just as good, but they didn't have a break either. So many of those, many companies were started because of the Osmo Studios, but we were able to be in Utah, live the way we did, and when we brought celebrities up here, they would fight for which dressing room they got because they were treated so family. We had wow. we put fireplaces in all the dressing rooms. We had gave them an, their own cook, and they could stay at our star quarters, which was really high-end, comfortable apartments, or they could stay in Robert Redford's cabins. We, we gave them a Jeep and a driver, and they would fight to come and be back with us again. We didn't know of celebrities that come up here. But what I'm trying to tell people, it is an act of faith. If you believe in something, you've got to put your foot forward and step up to it. And we did. And that first year, the, the quality of production that came out of on the videotape and broadcasting was better than NBC, ABC, and CBS, all of them, because we had the newest equipment and the fine production. And we was we were just so thankful for that, and uh, it, it was a blessing in our life for a period of time. When we're finished and, and the equipment was time to change out, guess what? We sold our studios and and we moved on with our families. And now we're simple and just enjoying retired. I've, I've been working at the temple fifteen years as an ordinance worker with my wife. My brother Merrill is going on a mission to Washington D.C. He's going to be in the visitor center there for a year, and this is where our hearts are. 
We're into the gospel. We're into people. I, I was thinking as you were talking earlier that your parents, and I told Marie this as well, your parents must have done something right because I feel like so many times success like this has the ability to tear people apart, to tear families apart, to also kind of make us a little bit confused about what's most important. And you all just have managed to stay close to keep your heads on straight and to keep your priorities in order. And and I applaud you and admire you so much for that. There's a lot of people just like us. They just don't have the fame. You know, you get out of life what you put into it. And uh, I know what I would be if I didn't have the gospel. Well, I'm so thankful for it. And that with that, we all don't take it, don't take for, take, uh, what's it, take for granted what, what, what the gospel's about, to have loving parents. That they rest, they gave up their lives and, and sold their businesses too, just to make ours, ours happen. And that's the way it is with each other. You don't take anything from this world except your, your marriage, your children, and the intelligence you gained, and friends. So let's look at life real and don't worry about the Lamborghini and all the fun stuff you can't take with you. We put our money into what things would turn around and bless people's lives. And, and as a result, we've been blessed. It's, it's the pendulum. What swings far to the right swings just as far to the left. So, yes, we're going to have hard times. That's why there's so much war, I think, in the Book of Mormon. It has to show opposition. Because unless you know how sad you are, you'll never know how happy you are when things are over. It's going to get really tough, but it's going to get really, really good when the Lord comes back. Alan, before we wrap up, I want to ask you one more thing. You mentioned earlier in this interview that you were diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, and that happened in 1987. Is that right? I think that's right. Okay. And I wondered if you could share with me, especially as we've talked so much about our Heavenly Father's plan and you've talked about, you know, what's coming for us after this life. And I wondered if you could share with me how MS has impacted and affected your life, but also how it's enhanced your gratitude for your knowledge of Heavenly Father's plan. Well, thank you. First of all, I have a testimony of Jesus Christ. I know he lives and I know the Heavenly Father's there. The Holy Spirit's there. And so when I got MS, it was started by me not being able to play my trumpet so fast. And then I noticed my right side, it's like I was tripped on something, like a nail on the floor or something, but there was not a nail on the floor. And I realized something was going on, and we couldn't figure it out for many years. My sweet wife, Suzanne, uh, she just, she was patient and she said, we'll figure it out. This is something we can live with. And when we found out it was MS, I thought it meant many sons. I had eight of them. <laughs> no, but it's a, it, it's a deterioration of the, of the myelin sheath. We, so my brain says go, but the signal doesn't go, go, go down where it needs to be, or at least it's distorted. So that's uh, something I could live with. And when we went to Branson, and it really hit me hard, and I, I fell and and, and it was, I had to come home and quit. And my brother says, we're not going on without you. Marie says, we're, we're, you're, we're, whatever it takes, we're in this together. That was what was so important about MS. It showed the love my family had for me. I was embarrassed to tell them I had it. But once I did, they, they just loved me more. That's what I try to do now with other people. That's why I said, well, I I may have MS, but MS does not have me. I know the big picture. It's just a physical thing. And these bodies of ours get old and they die. But you know what? We get them just like Jesus at the resurrection. We get a body back. And then the body and the spirit come together and are never parted again. And we go on to our glory. We become like our heavenly parents, our mother and father in heaven. That's what I give people hope. And when I get online and other people, I get swarms of people with MS to come talk to me. I said, please do. I want to give you some hope. And I tell them those things. And 
He said, you can get by. You can get through this. And my son David came down with it. He was married. When he married, he was in a wheelchair. But he finally, he came out of it too, just like me. We're stubborn, I guess. But he just hung in there. And we both take on, he, he hurts all day. His is different than mine. Mine's mine progressive. Mine keeps getting worse, and and his is, is has uh, exasperations, or and so he has to has a great pain. But anyway, those those are simple things you can get past once you understand the big picture of why we we get these things down here to test us. How you react is the important thing. If you become better or you become bitter, we chose to become better. And so we try to help others who have the same challenge to understand that just like us. And that's that's been the most fun part of having it is to see others with it to help them get out of the trough. Get up and get on your feet. And even if you can't do something, anything's better than nothing. And and it's some positive mental attitude. If you think you can't, you can't. And if you think you can, then you will. So that's the attitude we try to take. It's helped us in get get through things with life and music. And when hard times come, we just says, "Well, this too shall pass." We'd always say, and that's my mother's. She loves saying that, and my father <laughs> he's just so supportive. And he said, "Yeah, you can do it. Come on, boys, you can do it." So hang in there, everybody, as we go through hard times. Read your scriptures daily. We do that when we started a gold plate award for our grandkids and our sons. And now all of them read it basically uh, every day. It is a blessing. It is true. And I'll tell that to anybody, including the celebrities. Elvis Presley had book. He had missionaries, two sets of them. Um, we walk into foreign countries and they say, oh, don't say anything about your religion. I remember when we met Begin in, in, in Israel. And he says, oh, it's the Mormon Osmonds. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when my mother was went had a, the, the with Queen Elizabeth. We did a royal command performance, and backstage we're all ready there to meet her. And mother reached into her purse to give her a gift, and Scotland Yard shut everything down, blew whistles. What's going on? Well, Miss, Mrs. Osmond's reached into her bag. She said, "Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I just wanted to give Her Majesty the most precious gift I have." And she had taken the, the scriptures and all of them, the, the, the three and four and one, and had underlined them and presented it to Her Majesty, especially what pertained to England. And she wrote us the documented letter. She said, I'm going to put that on my mantle. And she did. We followed up later. So don't be embarrassed about being a Latter-day Saint, a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And that's why I just can't be quiet about it. Well, Alan, you are remarkable, and it has been so fun to talk with you and to hear some of these stories. You've confirmed some things. Like I've, I've heard for a long time that Elvis had missionaries, but I never knew if that was true. Well, yeah, he had some in <laughs> California and in Hawaii, and we met him, and he came backstage. He brought us, he, he said, uh, Elvis is upstairs watching the light booth. Boy, we were worried. And we said, well, we, the guy that made his jumpsuits made ours. His name was uh, Bill Ballou. And so we went on stage, looked like five Elvis Presley's. Then Elvis came backstage to see us. We said, oh, yeah, I love the jumpsuits, you guys. So but he also, had a, he did love the Lord. He got on the phone with me, called me backstage, and at least to call for any Osmonds. I'm being the spokesman. Everybody said, Alan, you take it. So I did, and it was Elvis Presley, and we talked for several minutes. And he says, "Oh, I love, I love my mother." And and, and I said, uh, "Well, my mother's here. Ooh, could I talk to her?" And so <laughs> my mother got on the phone with him, and we're just kind and loving, and and uh, he he watched us, and he said something. He watched how we would, my father would go out, and even though we were changing the the, the showroom cleaning the tables and everything, the fans wanted our autographs. So he made arrangements for them to come down through the back of the kitchen, past our dressing room downstairs, and we signed every autograph through the whole, as many as we could until the next show. And Elvis Presley saw that. And he said, if I could do it all over again, I would sign, like the Osmonds, every autograph for every fan that wanted it. 
And so I think we left our mark with a lot of people like that. He invited us to his house in California for a private barbecue. He said, I want, I'd like to invite your family to my house and have some time with you. And we had it on our calendar. He died the, the couple of weeks before that. My last question for you is, what does it mean to you to be all in the gospel of Jesus Christ? To be all in is to have all of the things that are available. Heavenly Father has told us, all that I have is thine. But we have to go where he is in order to get it. And I tell people, don't fall short. By There's so many people who say, oh, we have a Bible, but there's enough. They don't understand that the Bible had been, a lot of it's been t- taken away during the, the, the history of it. And the Book of Mormon is, still stands as a whole package. And Ezekiel 37, it tells you that it's the stick of, of Judah and the stick of Joseph. They're one in nine hand. So we try to help explain others to understand and to open their eyes to the fullness of the light. Everything we learn is light. It's truth. And you can have a little light or you can have a bright beaming light. It depends what you want, what makes you happy. And if you can't stand the heat and the light of the bright light, you, you won't be able to live there. And the same thing in patterns after the kingdom of heaven whether it's the star, the moon, or the sun, the glories. So get all the light and truth you can, and then you'll be able to be where the Heavenly Father is and be able to have all that He has offered. That's the thing I like to share and tell people, the big picture. Don't limit yourself. And if they're handicapped or they're hurt or they can't have children, those are the ones we go to first because they need to understand they're going to be just fine. And that's what people are lacking is hope. And that's why Jesus is coming back again, because this world's getting a mess again. And we're going to need lots of hope, and he's going to be there for us. I love the gospel and just want to share it with everyone I can see and and willing to listen to me. Alan, thank you so much. I I appreciate your example and the light that you've shared with us today and just wish you the absolute best. Well, Morgan, you're a great person. And thank you for your dedication and for the opening prayer you gave us. That's something we do before every show. And uh, we do every day and night and throughout the day. It's, It's a way to become. That's when you're all in. We are so grateful to Alan Osmond for joining us on this week's episode. Big thanks to Derek Campbell of Mix It Six Studios for his help with this episode. And thank you for listening. We'll look forward to being with you again next week.